1: Mama, mama, mama right there it's washington bullets by the clash from their 1980 album sandinista it's also number 407 out of 500 on the 500 with josh adam Myers. what's up you could spooglies? i'm the fleece king And I am guiding you through Rolling Stone magazine's list of the 500 greatest albums. We are so close to breaking 400. A lot of you didn't think we'd make it. To be honest with you, I knew it. I had some doubts, but we're almost there. Only 7.9 more years to go. First thing I want to talk about with all you guys is the response for the Sinead O'Connor episode is phenomenal. Um, What I love about this list is that you look at it and you'll be like, I'm not going to dig this or I'll just, you know, we'll just do the episode and we'll just move on. Dude, the Sinead O'Connor record is sticking with me. It was so cool to talk to my guest this week about how powerful her lyrics were. And then the response from everybody in the Fleece Army that's listening to the pod, man, you are incredible because you got it. Huge thanks to Sarah Quinn from Tegan and Sarah for coming on. Also, I want to give huge thanks to my friend Tammy Jo Deeren and her wife Nicole for putting me on Asphalt Comedy in Los Angeles at the Magic Castle in the parking lot. It was so great to be doing stand-up again and then to be able to see all my buddies like Fahim Anwar, Craig Conan, Bill Burr. Uh, Two nights He walked cars the first night They drove off First they cussed at him Then they drove off And then my good friend Jim Jeffries And Jesus Trejo Man, if there are comedians Coming to your town And they're doing drive-in shows Support them, man We are going through it Just like everybody else And it's not even about money But just the idea of like Us going up on stage And talking to an audience Even if we're performing To a bunch of Toyota Celicas Please go, man We love it We need it so, thank you to everybody that showed up and keep your eyes peeled for Tammy Joe Deeren's uh, next few shows. Also, I've got some more stuff coming up at the comedy store, guys. We're doing a couple live 500s. September 16th, uh, I got one with Josh Wolf. September 23rd, I have one with Tony Baker. And we're going to be doing those live streaming on my YouTube. So, subscribe to my YouTube. Where we've got extra podcasts, I've got some funny stand-up clips, I've got everything, and it's perfect for you to dig into during this quarantine. Before we get into the podcast, guys, I want to mention our new sponsor, Sunset Lake CBD. Sunset Lake CBD is made on a pesticide-free farm in Vermont. Originally, it was family-owned dairy farm producing Ben and Jerry's ice cream. And then in 2018, the farm decided to diversify and start growing hemp for CBD. And they only use organic fertilizers. If you'd like to smoke cannabis, but you don't want to get super stoned, try their hand-trimmed CBD hemp flower. The hand-trimmed flower is all pesticide free, slow cured, and stored in tamper sealed glass jars. Also, they've got pre-rolls. So if you need to go on the go and want a little. And if you're not a smoker, but you want to enjoy CBD, Sunset Lake CBD also has gummies, tinctures. Their 500 milligram topical salves are perfect for massaging muscles and joints. And if you guys think that I'm just saying this because they're paying me, I'm not. Lekka hurt her paw. They gave me one of their tinctures. I gave Lekka Dog. That, it fixed her paw. I believe in this company. Check them out at sunsetlakecbd.com. Use the promo code JAM500 for 15% off your next purchase. And now, back to the pie. When this album that we're breaking down today came up on the list, I got excited. I knew London Calling, but I never really listened to anything else other than the hits. So let's find out a little bit about The Clash Sandinista. So released on December 12th of 1980, this is the fourth album mostly self-produced by The Clash. Right before this album came out, The Clash released 1979's double album London Calling, and it broke them in America. On that record, they explored a shitload of different styles, including reggae, R&B, rockabilly, and ska. At that point, they became known as the only band that mattered, and they came up with this great idea, and they informed their record company that they wanted to release one single every month. They were denied, so they followed up London Calling's double album with a triple album. 36 tracks. And I want to ask the Fleece Army out there, besides the diehard fans, how many of you listened to this album from the first track to track 36? Raise your hand. I see a few of you, okay? It's a longie, but man, is it rewarding. Recorded mostly in 1980 in New York, Jamaica, London, and Manchester, Sandinista was named after the left-wing Nicaraguan rebels who had recently overthrown their country's dictator. But even though it was mostly critically acclaimed and did pretty well, including sales better in the US than in the UK, it was often considered too ambitious and probably their weakest release by comparison. However, since then, it's been heralded as ahead of its time, due in large part to The Clash's introduction to various world beat styles. They follow up Sandinista with their most popular album, 1982's Combat Rock, which made them international superstars. Then the band started to disintegrate. They limped on for another poorly received album before breaking up. They were inducted into the Rock and Roll Hall of Fame in 2003. Unfortunately, Joe Strummer died a month after the notice of them being inducted. And there goes the promise of a return of the only band that matters. The Clash are, honest to God, one of the most politically minded revolutionary bands in the history of music. And my guest today is a part of bands that I feel match that revolutionary mindset. The one and only Tom Murillo. If you don't know Tom Murillo, then you don't know music, ladies and gentlemen. Tom is one fourth of one of the most influential bands of my lifetime, Rage Against the Machine. He was also a part of Audio Slave, Prophets of Rage, and his acoustic solo shit with Night Watchmen. Rate, review, and most importantly, subscribe to the 500 and listen free anywhere you get your pods. If you're listening on Apple Podcasts, please leave a five star rating and leave a review. Stop the podcast right now and leave a review on Apple Podcasts. Follow me at Josh Adam Myers on all social media. Email the podcast at 500podcastgmail.com. At Follow the Facebook group, the 500 Podcast with Josh Adam Myers and the 500 Podcast fan page. And for all things 500, go to our website, the500podcast.com. Welp, guys, nothing left to say, but here we go with number 407, Sandanista by the Clash. And you are going to enjoy this podcast. So here we go. Let's start it right now. We had this talk one time when we were at the Hollywood Improv. And we were talking about The Clash, and you said one of the most profound statements about The Clash and its influence on you. Take me through your history with The Clash.
0: Sure, sure, sure. Well, I grew up on a suburban 7-Eleven parking lot heavy metal. Nice. That was it. It was like the two... The two polar extremes of my listening, you know, as a, as a youth were kiss and black Sabbath, you know, anything in between that was sort of like the, that was the range. And then I was, uh, on the school newspaper and this kid came in and he had, uh, he had the London calling record. And to me, it looked like an awesome heavy metal album. There's a guy breaking a bass on it. I thought that's going to be some great heavy metal. He said, it is not heavy metal, but it is great. I said, well, that's an impossibility. Yeah. That's just not something that could possibly be. Uh, and he allowed me to borrow it. To tape it um to and i taped it and it was the revelation that you have when something when a new completely new horizon of life opens up because i already had my sort of political north star was set but i thought it would forever be a different lane from the music that i loved and here was a band that was making sense they were more truthful than the teachers in class and the and the broadcasters on on the evening news And they were a great band that looked cool at the same time. I was like, this is fantastic. Yeah. Uh, I immediately wrote, I was in like a punk rock band that wrote sort of funny songs. And I wrote my first political song, a song called Salvador death squad blues within hours of, you know, listening (laughs) listening to it. Yeah. uh, The the London, the London calling record. And it became my favorite band, but the revelatory moment was not just in the music. It was in the live performance. I was in a, my punk rock band we played in my mom's basement and i had a uh, a music man amplifier sort of a you know a, a scrimpy music man amplifier that was on a chair in the basement where i rehearsed with my band i went to go see the clash in 1982 at the aragon ballroom in chicago and from the time i walked in the door it was different than it was my first non heavy metal concert it was like all my concert t-shirts had devils and witches and and good the stuff <laughs> was very similar to the one that i have now as much more it just had a few words written over the heart and it said the future is unwritten i just thought this is an entirely like different kind of way of being at a show and then of course they played the kind of show where with the with the intensity and passion like everybody's soul in the room was at stake um and all that was important but was most important was Joe Strummer, my favorite musician at the time, had exactly the same amplifier that I did, a little scrimpy Music Man amp, on a chair on the stage of the Aragon Ballroom. And, you know, and, you know, until that moment, I was certain that you had to have, you know, a $10,000 Les Paul and a, and a castle on a Scottish lock in order to be, like, a legitimate musician. Yeah. And at that moment, I realized, I'm already a legitimate musician it's not that there's any barriers like he's doing it here. I'm going to go home and I'm going to do it there. And we're all rocking and telling the truth in our own way.
1: Dude. So, I mean, so how did that influence everything from that point on? I mean, yeah, well,
0: it it made I mean, first of all, it made it, the the reason why they were a band was different from the reason why I imagined any of my other metal bands. I like, like like they were a band to, they were trying to change the world with three minute songs. And as someone who, as I, I was a beginning musician then, but as someone who was, soon it would become a calling i was stuck being guitar player i didn't really choose that that kind of chose me yeah but i had these ideas in my head and now i have a vocation that i'm trapped in as a guitarist and there might be a way to meld those two worlds into having not only be able to uh, as a form of expression but perhaps having you know my hands on the wheel of history
1: yeah well sorry so the first record you get is london calling yeah. Okay, And so then how did that develop? Because I'm, what I'm curious of, and this is what was blowing my mind, because I know London Calling, like I own that record. It's incredible. And I know the hits by The Clash. But I'm not mm. somebody that would ever mm. say that I am a Clash historian or even yeah. I'm a new Clash fan, to be honest with you, yeah. because this album is what set me down this rabbit hole with them. But I want to yeah. know what that was like to hear London Calling and then to hear Sandinista, which is like yeah. the white album of punk rock.
0: It is the White Album of punk rock. I yeah. mean, well, I went back first. I got the, you know, I got the self-titled record and then Give him Enough Rope. And The Clash's journey on record is, you know, in some ways it's not dissimilar from the from the uh, musical ambition of the Beatles. Yeah. The two things that those, the two thing those bands have in common is that they were able to realize those extraordinary visions. There's a lot of bands that you know, the, the Sandinista, London Calling, and the White Album have ruined a lot of perfectly good bands <laughs> who should have just stayed ACDC, but then they thought that they were geniuses and had like a opera in them and they didn't yeah, you know? <laughs> <laughs> so, uh, fortunately the clash had that ability but i mean the, the first clash record is an amphetamine driven you know molotov punk rock co- cocktail that the shot that was turned around the world the second record give Me enough rope uh sandy perlman produced that he was a producer best known for producing blue oyster cult albums um and the clash's manager bernie rhodes you know who was no blue oyster cult fan he was like a he was like a you know a a situationist you know big thinker guy but he heard the production on that record he thought if we take these joe strummer lyrics and these mick jones melodies but we sound that good with this political intent we might be the biggest might be on the way to being the biggest band in the world yeah he had you may have had a point. Then London Calling was where they you know they had toured in America, they discovered America, there were a lot of American influences on that album which were hated by the by the enemy and melody maker yeah. and, and whatnot. But it made them it was their foot in the door of becoming a global band and really transcending what had previously been punk rock music and redefining punk rock music as truly following it had nothing to do with a specific haircut or a limited number of chords. It had to do with following this kind of authentic internal vision. yeah. You know? um, and then came so now they're you know the Rolling Stones record of all time one of the you know is, is one calling yeah. and so Sandinista was very different because the first you know the the first three records had been road tested in a way. A lot of those songs that appeared on those albums they had played live. Sandinista was a record that was entirely written in a number of studios. One Yeah Jamaica, yeah yeah I've got Jamaica, I've got Virginia. New York,
1: Jamaica, London, Manchester yeah, yeah. Sure. But it was
0: one where they they went in with no material and while the drugs of choice in on the first record were sort of the speed and and pills and you can hear that in the music. Yeah. Now it was weed with a pinch of heroin coming Ooh. in and <laughs> and you can hit you on the drummer's front and you and you can hear that but there's definitely an entirely different scenario there. Um, Joe Strummer famously built something called the Spliff Bunker in their studio where they had booked out Electric Leyland for three weeks, and it was this kind of a bunch of flight cases and a ton of weed, and that's where he did all, all, most of the lyric writing.
1: Oh, so, I love that. I love that. Because here's the thing. This is like, you guys. let's just talk about how many different music styles are on this record. You've got funk, reggae, jazz, gospel, fucking rockabilly, folk. Yeah. Then you have dub, rhythm and blues,
0: calypso, disco, and rap. Yeah. I mean. Yeah. It's they, the, it's the first global music album. Yeah. Ever. And, and send to gets, you know, like, and, and I'm, I'm a huge clash fan. I think I read a concurrent review at the record. It might've been village voice that said, if this is the clash's worst album, and I believe it is it just confirms what a great fucking band they are. the only <laughs> you know, like band that this is the worst record you're gonna make it's right like,
1: I really you know that that statement that this is the only band that that's yeah. what is yeah what is it the only band yeah, that's that matters the
0: only band that matters yeah do you still believe that well i mean they they certainly they certainly at at the time planted a flag that was they had a lane entirely to themselves. you know what I mean yeah. while there had been artists who had had had, had uh uh you know, sort of humanitarian intent. There was never a band that was built a band with those kind of that, that kind of punk rock sensibility of, of like for the people from the ground up musically, but then had this kind of global perspective where they were engaging in issues like the Sandinista revolution in Nicaragua. Yeah. That that, record was named. Well, There's no ba- there was no, no, there have been nothing like that in, in Western. Media.
1: But you came, but you came from a political family. So, yeah, so yeah. I'm curious. So, when you first dive into the Clash, knowing what you know from what your parents have taught you, like, did this just open you up to everything? Where you're just like, Holy yeah, shit. It did,
0: because like, like I said, like I had, I was, I was, you know, I worked on an underground newspaper in high school. I was very sort of politically attuned. at the time. The issues were apartheid and death squads in Central America, and the fact that the dean at my school was a dick. Like, those were all the big political yeah. issues in my mind at the time. <laughs> um, and here was a band that kind of spoke to all of them, you know, and it pointed the way towards a future where you could make you, you didn't have to write a book. You didn't have to be Noam Chomsky and write a 900 page book. You didn't have to be a college lecturer. You could be in a cool fucking rock and roll band and still have the same kind of, you know, for me, it was like, could I be the Black Panthers and Ace Freely at the same time? Yeah, dude. And the clash went you might be able to do that. (laughs) I love it. (laughs) I fucking love that.
1: All right. There's so many songs I want to talk about. All right. So let's just dive right in.
0: Okay. So the album opens. One one more crazy thing about the record is that it's got seven lead vocalists on. Yeah. This is everybody
1: got a taste. They brought in people. uh, That's correct. My favorite song.
0: Lose this skin. Lose this skin. Yes. Time and dog who was just like a busking bro of Joe Strummers who played the violin and wandered in the studio. And that guy's on the record. Again, a great song.
1: What I loved What I loved about going through this record and becoming friends with you is that like when i put this on and i got to that song all i wanted to do was just keep texting you i was like i'm bugging this guy but i was like but this song fucking rips man and he knows it it rips but dude the album opens up with the magnificent seven okay this is the third single uh peter play a little
0: taste
1: the the so real so oh, this God. takes one man's boring workday and then just builds it out. In my opinion, I'm glad we already mentioned him. This is the, this is like an early rap version of A Day in the Life by the Beatles.
0: Sure, but you have to think of it in the context of the time. Rap was at the time, at best, Thought of as like a gimmick, a gimmicky, you know, stepsister of disco. Yeah, that that all you know, all self-respecting rock and roll fans hated disco. You know, like at at the time. And then here was rap music, which was just this kind of like this uh, total, you know, uh, gimmicky sidebar to a genre that was despised in rock and roll circles. And they started the record with a rap song. Now I'm not sure when when Blondie's rap song came out this actually beat blondie's rapture by six months yeah so it's the first rock and roll rap song ever yeah you know what i mean and the 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 magnificent dub which was a non-vocal version became a bit of a hit on new york fledgling hip-hop radio state or what would be later be known as hip-hop radio stations that was mick jones influence there like he was the guy that always was like joe strummer was always kind of looking back into the authenticity of whether it was woody guthrie or rockabilly and mick jones was always looking for like what's the newest thing and he loved hip-hop he would always carry around like a big boom box you know he saw himself as a, B- a b-boy from the projects in london and whatnot yeah but anyway so that was it, that was his influence was bringing in the hip-hop but the fact that one uh, one of the things that i a complaint i have about sandinista a record that i love is that i think that london calling was a perfectly sequenced album sandinista you could argue that, you know, when this record came out, I Magnificent Seven has gone on to become one of the Clash classics. But at the time they started with a rap song. And I forget what the next two songs are down the way, but it like as a as a someone who loved the Clash, I listened to the first three songs on the record and went, What the hell is happening? That's what I'm saying, dude. <laughs> dude.
1: Well, first I wanted before we get on to the other songs, I wanted to ask you this because you you like you said at the beginning, this 7-Eleven, you know, parking lot rock is where you yeah. started and then you end up in one of the biggest, and I, and I hate saying rap rock bands, but, yeah. Yeah. but I mean, like where did this love of rap, like get, how did it get into your world?
0: Yeah. I, I the first time I heard hip hop music, I was 19 years old and I was in London and I heard, I was uh, in a London record store, probably looking for, you know, Randy Rhodes, Ozzy Osbourne bootlegs or something like that. Yeah. And they were playing on the speakers, Grandmaster Flash on the Furious Five. They were playing the song survival. And I had never heard, that music before yeah and and so i just said what is that music i bought it it was the first time i bought a 12 inch record came home played it for my friends no one understood it but i liked the attitude on it and sort of the the way that they were doing it you know and then and then the the clash is fearlessness i never i never sort of identified what joe was doing in these songs as rap though it obviously clearly is it is yeah but because of the sort of the sonic context was a little bit more rock and roll, but but that was my introduction to rap, and then it was you know then it was Run DMC and Beastie Boys, like everybody else back then, who you know they put they had electric guitars in it and they had more attitude than any
1: than any rock and roll. yeah dude I mean they're but they came from a punk rock background that's right so yeah. so it makes sense you know for them to do it but what what I'm just so curious of is like you know you come like the band prior to Rage is a punk band right.
0: Yeah, no, my that Zach's band was, my band was lock-up, very, very sort of living color style, sort of a in the world of the Chili Peppers with singing.
1: Which blows my so, mind then, because I texted wow. you about the, I texted you about Minutemen, and yeah. and you were like, no, I'm not influenced, and I was like, dude, but that no. just, I feel like that, that made its way into your fucking stratosphere.
0: Well, absolutely, I mean, sir, there was, you know, Zach came from a hardcore, like o- Orange County, hardcore straight edge, he was in a band called Inside Out. Yes,
1: was, I had that record fucking ripped, band, yeah. yeah
0: known in those circles and uh you know and, and that was my punk rock was the british band was sex pistols in the clash you know uh, for me the bridge that, that they were able to build to me was that you could play songs in that ballpark without a great deal of practice and i liked that like i wanted to be in a band i was in a, i got the sex pistols cassette and was in a band within 24 hours of purchasing the cassette <laughs> yeah. i didn't know how to play a note or a chord on the guitar i marched into the libertyville public high school drama club which was my zone there and said a punk band is forming. Uh, raise your hand if you want to be in it. No experience required. And I had a guitar, so I was a guitar player <laughs> that band. And uh <laughs> but the thing that they had that that didn't feel too much different in some ways than the seven eleven pop parking lot was they were stars. They dressed up for gigs, and sometimes you know, I'm sure what Sid Vicious slept in, he also wore on stage. Yeah. But for a Midwestern kid in the basement, that was rock star uniforms. And the Clash were very con- self conscious about the artwork and the way that they looked in a, in a way that was different from the Minutemen and maybe you know, like the you know the Fugazis and things like that. Sure, who were d- dressed more like their audience.
1: Sure. All right, it starts with a with a rap song. And then the second song on the record is Hitsville UK, which is yeah. which is the first moment on the record where I'm like holy shit this isn't London calling. This is something completely completely different. Yeah. And it just blew my mind because this is a Motown inspired song. It's their yeah. second single. It's a duet with Mick Jones and his girlfriend yes. Yes. at the time. Do you know? I don't know if you know this. All right. So I'm going to say this to all the fans. So the girl singing in the background, Ellen Foley, who earlier sang on Meatloaf's Bad Out of Hell album, including her duet on Paradise by the Dashboard Light, and this fact, which blew my fucking mind. Later, she starred on the second season of Night Court. Which is one of my favorite sitcoms of all time. Uh, I don't know if you remember. She played like the Marky Post character. Like I didn't know. I'm not too deep on. Not, that. Right you're more, you're more of a Cheers guy, right? You're Cheers. Yeah. <laughs> you're all Cheers. Uh, here, play a little bit of this because this is just so different than anything I had ever heard by The Clash. The
0: All right, so what are you, what are your thoughts on this? I mean, back in the day, I thought they lost their damn minds. I mean, the first <laughs> song's a rap song, and then there's this like who's the, who is she, first of all? I'm like, and you could hear Mick Jones songwriting in that like I you know, familiar with his sort of melodies and chord change. Like this is a Mick Jones song, but what are they doing to me? Like I <laughs> yeah. like I had no idea where this and the, the record gets crazier and crazier as it goes on. For sure. Um and as all Clash fans have done, and I think that I text you about this too, but you know, we all make our, our single album out of it. Yeah. I kind of picked up Clash records here and there and, and was not a, in the UK music press. But the reason why Sandinista became Sandinista was the Clash had an idea they were going to release a single a month. Yeah. Right? And it was this kind of bold, you know, one of the big, bold ideas that they had. They were going to release a single a month and they did a song called Bank Robber, one of my favorite Clash songs. They turned it into the label and the label said, this is some of the word is this music they describe bank robber as sounding like all of david bowie's records played at the same time backwards and they were not big fans of that idea it's gone on to become you know one of the classic songs of the 20th century but that plan got derailed so the songs that were part of that eventually would likely have been a clash london reggae album so that sort of dissipated, and then they went to this new formula of we're going to just hunker down the studio and write from scratch. Everybody's high. Topper's always the first one in the studio, as the as the legend goes. He he must have scored. I don't know. <laughs> I mean, I don't Dr- know.
1: Druggies make get get places very very quickly. He was there, he
0: was there early, <laughs> and his influence on this record cannot be underestimated. Because there's a cliche that says a band is only as good as its drummer, and the Clash could never have explored the musical territory that without the extraordinary diverse chops of topper head and the drummer however it is not as widely known that he was also a great bass player and pianist oh. so he would come in he'd be the first one in the studio and he'd lay down basic tracks to a song but then the band would come in whenever and you know and continue to work on it uh his most famous contribution is of course rock the casbah on which he is the bass player the drummer and the keyboard
1: player. yeah anyway So this song argues that the network of small independent labels beginning to assert themselves in Britain in the late 70s, early 80s, comprised an outlet for artists which rivaled the majors. So I wanted to ask you this because similarly to The Clash, Rage signed their first record deal with Epic uh, and The Clash got backlash when they signed theirs. So how did you guarantee and maintain your integrity within this whole studio bureaucracy? And, yeah. and did you get any backlash for, yeah, for we becoming certainly got I mean,
0: first of all, I, I had plenty of friends that were on independent labels that were fucking them over right and left all day long, too. It's a bigger version of capitalism and a little version of capitalism where the people where the p- bands get screwed. You know, capitalism, on a yeah. so I had also been on a major label. My band Lockup had had put out a record on Geffen Records and I had seen I had personally experienced every horror story dicking that bands. Get you know, they manipulative uh, in the creative realm, shafting you on the financial realm, just a, a really awful experience. At the end of the day, we were kicked out the door. I think we got like $250 a piece. They said, thank you very much. I was 27 years old and my grab at the brass ring was done. So I had that armor. When Rage Against the Machine formed, and I had been in all those offices before with all the managers and all the this and the that, I had had a record deal, it sucked. <laughs> and so, when Rage Against the Machine became the subject of a huge bidding war after our second public performance, Jesus, I was like, I, There's nothing you can tell, I'm not interested. Like, if we get a record deal, my life got worse the last time I had a yeah, record yeah, yeah. deal. You know, and so here's the list of things that might make us consider it. One was 100% creative control over every aspect of our career, from the posters in France to the liner notes of every album in perpetuity. I had a fa- this was the days of the fax machine. We <laughs> at the time at the time we had at the time we had two cars and one job between the four guys in Rage Against the Machine. Yeah. And we were being, you know, taken to five-star lunches, you know, every, every day. And I said, we're not interested in having lunch with you until you send back this document signed that I'm going to send you. And these were the they were criteria. It was basically creative control over everything. If we ever do business together, it has to be a minimum of three albums. And here's the budgets for those, the minimum budgets for those albums. And then we'll go have lunch. Ooh. And so I would kind of learned my lesson. Yeah. Um, but with, with regards to the major label, like – The Clash were on Epic Records. The reason why Dave Vogel had London Calling was he bought it at music, you know, the multiplex music store at the mall in small town Libertyville, Illinois, and it changed my life for me to be so elitist to go that now I'm going to be in a band that's going to deny kids in suburbs, whether they're here or whether they're in Manila or whether in Berlin, the ability to hear my band was the easiest Decision. Yeah. All
1: period. right, I got to ask this follow-up question. Do you still have a fax machine?
0: <laughs> I don't. Fuck yeah, dude. I don't know how to work dude, any of this so, stuff. But what I, if he was I, like, I, he was like, dude, I'm all fax machines? I Wait. held on to my BlackBerry. I was like the last person. The BlackBerry literally disintegrated with <laughs> my just crumbled.
1: <laughs> You're like, honey, do you want to watch The Burbs tonight on VHS? <laughs> no? <laughs> okay. All right, so the next song following that, but I think it hits Phil, is Junko Partner. It's a reggae dub song. It's a cover. I want to skip that to get to Ivan meets G.I. Joe. Sure. Because you mentioned that everybody got a taste at singing. This is sung by drummer Nikki topper who wrote the music with lyrics by Joe Strummer. Uh, Peter, play the second verse. Inside his tricks, that rusty band- This is a disco song about a potential nuclear war.
0: Yeah, it's a Cold War (laughs) disco song. It (laughs) it predates the Frankie Goes to Hollywood's Two Tribes by a little bit, right? (laughs) Yeah, dude. But it's just,
1: but so, so, so far we've had, we've had rap, we've had uh, Motown,
0: then a dub taste, and now we're at. It's outrageous. I mean, it's just, it's the the, and it's it's very challenging. And I, I don't know whether the intention was to challenge this this growing you know, audience they, they had, but it really did. Like, it was a hard wreck. You put on those first four songs. As a huge fan, I was challenged by it. I was like, I don't know what I'm listening to. And like, where are my jams? And are these my jams?
1: Yeah. <laughs> <But> <laughs> are do, they over my head? Do you ever want to like write some fun Nile Rodgers type funky song? Or do you feel like <laughs> there has to be a message? Because your music, everything, I, I've I've enjoyed everything. But I feel, always feel like when I'm listening to it, I'm like, I have to listen to the lyrics because it's like, oh no, they're
0: saying shit in here. Yeah. So well I mean I I have a as diverse a roster of collaborative partners as probably yeah. anybody. You know, I've played with Wu-Tang and Pete Seeger and Sepultura. So there's a pretty broad pretty broad spectrum. Um and you know and when I work with other artists, you know, like I've done EDM records and whatnot and that's going to be what it's going to be, and it's it's often friend rock, and I'm happy to show up and show out <laughs> yeah, and yeah. play some rocking guitar on whatever it is. I actually did a song, non political song, with a fellow by the name of Joe Strummer, called "It's a Rockin' World," which is on the South Park soundtrack. Fuck yeah, it is. is a so one of one of my sort of most memorable. It's not a particularly great song, but it was a great couple, couple, <laughs> who gives couple a shit? of evenings. Dude,
1: who gives a shit? You get to hang out with Joe. I did. That's the dopest, did. dopest shit, dude. I All right. got to
0: play the guitar too. All
1: right. So then uh, another one I wanted to bring up, because we're talking about different musical styles. The Leader uh, is a rockabilly song. And this is how dope the Clash are. This song is just a retelling of a political sex stand- scandal that Joe Strummer read in the paper. And it couldn't be more catchy. Peter, uh, play just a little taste of the leader. You know what? What sucks so much about is, like, I want to talk to you about every song on this record, but we can't. But it's like, this this is just why I love this band now. It's just like... I was trying to pick out so many different songs to talk to you about that. I was like, that really, I feel grasp, like how deep their, their genre, like shifting goes. And it's like, I always, every song, I feel like I can't skip over it. Something like this. That's just this, like, like, this isn't a, a a hugely popular clash song, is it?
0: No, no, no. But I mean, it just, it just speaks to like, they were just, you know, a, a Joe Strummer once described it. Like we were, they were completely free musically. And there were no rules whatsoever. And if a balalaika showed up in the studio, then they'd all want to play a bigger balalaika on the next yeah, song. Yeah, yeah. Like, a, that kind of artistic free I mean, that's you know, that's kind of what you sign up for when you start playing music is to find yourself in a place where you have an audience that you can inflict your vision on.
1: But but not even that it's not just like they're just inflicting their vision and but it's like they're they're almost hiding the message in these beautiful like pop songs like yeah, dude yeah. like something about England all right here peter play just a little taste of something about England i
0: said you a thing to i miss the 1418 war but not the sorrow
1: afterwards. oh my fucking guy, kill it cuz i had to, i could listen to this whole thing but dude this is like I mean, this is one of the most, it's so great, dude. So, So this is The Clash experimenting with Music Hall, which is one of Britain's oldest musical genres. It dates back to like Victorian, Edwardian times, and it's so whimsical, but the lyrics are bemoaning how two world wars and the industrial revolution still couldn't break down the class system, which causes so much disharmony in England. And yeah. it needed to be smashed and they put it in this like ski-ga boot. Yeah. <laughs> like
0: when you know, when, when when we proponents of the clash say it's the only band that matters. Like that's what we're talking about. There's no, there's no there's never been a band that's thought that broadly, both musically and you know, kind of intellectually and politically, and had that kind of fire in their belly. And I mean, the, the one thing we haven't talked about this record, which at the time was the was the lead headline of every story about Sandinista, was that this was a triple album that they sold for the price of one record. Yeah, they sold, they it. sold for the price of one record. With they had, you know, they had sold the London Calling had been, you know, a hit with a double album. The labels like, we just want a single album of hits this time. This is going to be, you guys can be the biggest band in the world. You're going to be the Who. And they're like, well, or. Here's a triple album, that, so they 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 didn't take royalties on like the first two hundred thousand records yeah. or something like that. So I mean, it's a, it's just it's just a different way of looking at your art and your commerce as a band than any band had looked at it that way before that had that kind of platform.
1: Sure, but but this is the thing: is that they they they're making this three record album, and there's what thirty six songs on this, but. There's not much filler, like even the songs that I kind of skipped over, like I didn't, like basically the whole first like twelve songs on the record, well, like oh, I there's just, some
0: filler, there's yeah, some filler for
1: sure, <laughs> and especially towards especially towards the end when you get into the real heavy dub stuff, so cool. but like so you go from something about England, then the other one I want to talk about, Rebel Waltz, which is the story of rebels set to the tune of a waltz, uh, mm. and it's, it's it's just a beautiful
0: like, song, so.
1: Beautiful. Fucking beautiful. So I wanted to ask you this, because this is, in a sense, a very, I don't want to say stripped down song, but it's still following the waltz format. Mm -hmm. And you created this acoustic, like political protest alter ego, the Night Watchman. And in your own words, the Black Robin Hood of the 21st century music. So where did the- aiming high. But you created this. Like, where did the fearlessness- to basically appear so musically naked, come from?
0: Yeah, well, that was. I mean, it was at the time when we were. Uh, when I st- I didn't start my career as a singer songwriter until I was deep in my thirties. Uh, you know, an audio slave. We had just just formed as a band, and when it became clear to me that like the audio sl- in all, in order for a band to be great, it has to be authentic. And I my original vision for audio slave, but it was going to be a band that was going to be more political. Than Rage Against the Machine. Wow. And then when we would, you know, sit around and writing songs and talking about what we wanted to do, it was clear that it was not going to be authentic if I was jamming that, you know, square peg into that into that round hole. So I had to find additional outlets. And really it was one night at, at Covenant House. It was like a Thanksgiving night at Covenant, which is a homeless teen shelter in Hollywood, where I was I was there on Thanksgiving. And there was like a talent show. And this one kid got up there and he had a lot not going for him. In his life. But he got out there and he sang and he had an out of tune guitar and he sang with so much like spirit and he didn't sing particularly well, but like he meant every word of it. And I thought, I I have ideas and like, why don't I do that? Like, I was a fan of Springsteen, a fan of Dylan, a fan of Woody Guthrie, and like, but I never tried that. So I began going to open mic nights. And in the height of Audio Slaves Arena tours, on days off, I would go sign up as the night watchman at little coffee shops and play my three songs with the equal amount of sometimes more sort of passion and commitment to that music than anything I had done before first night watching record a long time came out like about three days ago police army get it it's called you belong to me and i directed the video to it so check it out
1: i will uh the next song the crooked beat all right so with lyrics based on the nursery rhyme there was a crooked man bassist paul Simonon wrote and sang this late addition to the album as sort of a follow-up to london callings the guns of brixton uh this actually has my favorite intro in the whole record peter play the intro
0: this is as dub as dub gets yeah first of all that's a great drummer in that oh. band man. like you know the minute man couldn't play that song no right? god no
1: god no but this is what makes him so so it has this real like hypnotic uh lee perry uh reggae mm-hmm. dub vibe going for it And then it features some toasting at the end by Perry associate Mikey Dredd, who had Mm -hmm. become best friends with the band. And I love this fact that I found. It's rumored to have been written and recorded quickly in order to both fill space on the record and, and this is my favorite part, to give Paul Simonon some
0: royalties. Yes. Yeah. He was very vocal and complained about the fact, like, he's like, oh, the guys that write the songs, they're the ones that make the money. I should write a song sometime, (laughs) and then and then he he wrote the the song on London Calling, which is one of the all time Guns of Brixton, one of the all time great Clash songs. Uh, And while his voice, I mean, I don't know the. I love his voice. I mean, I think it's it complements the other fellas, the other fellas well. And Crooked Beat is a great addition. Oh, it's
1: dude, it's so good. But also, just the story of of Paul is cool because he's an artist, he doesn't really want to become a bass player. Mick Jones tells him, he's like, dude, you know, he shows him Stuart Sutcliffe's paintings, and he's like, dude, you could do this shit. Like, we can jam together as friends and be in this fucking band. So I've read that your few years playing with Bruce saw you pushing Bruce to like re-examine and revive some of the older material. So what did you learn from jamming with him and playing with Bruce?
0: Oh, wow. I mean, well, first of all, I had never, I didn't come up like in as a bar band guy. Uh, and you know, the Easter band of course is the greatest bar band of all time. All time, so, yeah. So those guys know, like I, it, I had to learn 250 Bruce Springsteen songs before the first show. And that <laughs> didn't came nowhere near to covering what I had to play. You know? But yeah, yeah, yeah. And in the, in the, on the last U.S. tour that I did with the band in 2014, 2015, we played 34 shows, 182 different songs in 34 wow, shows. Nice. So the first thing I learned was a brand new skill set. And that some, like, some, Bruce would take requests. Yeah. Sometimes he would, you know, like somebody's holding up a sign, and he looks at the sign, and he looks stage right, and he looks stage left, and the amount of time you have to. Sometimes they're not Bruce Springsteen songs; it might be a cover song. Yeah. You know, and 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 the amount of time I had to learn that song was one, two, three, four. <laughs> <laughs> and now you're in a stadium in Melbourne and you better play something. <laughs> did it ever,
1: did it ever, was there ever a moment that you were just completely lost up there with him where you were well, like, you Well,
0: know, I'm, I'm big on preparation. Sure. Let me tell you that. I'm really big on preparation. I was not, the Easter Band had been great for a, one of the greatest bands of all time for 40 years yeah. before I joined them. And I didn't want to, be the week, like, like yeah oh, well, oh, he ruined the Easter band. So I was ready for pretty much everything that came up. However, there were a couple times when he took requests where the one time I got a little too confident. It is. And I forget it's a it's a it's a Bruce song, but it's a it's a it's a medley. It's called the Detroit medley. And it's like three songs from great Motown bands or something like that. And I, it was one that I had not prepared, but it was kind of the song first song wasn't that complicated. And so I'm just like, Oh, I'm rocking it. Hey, I got this man. I got 250, uh, this 251. I'm totally cool. (laughs) And then it abruptly changes into another song. It's like in a different key, a different tempo. And I'm completely lost Yeah, standing at the front of the stage, like no longer smiling and then turning around and turning my volume down way zero, down yeah, and then pretending to play the rest of it. Don't tell me. <laughs> I won't. That only happened. That happened.
1: He's a huge <laughs> listener of the 500. So, I mean, I can't, yeah, yeah. No, pro- no promises, bro. Um, somebody got murdered. Uh, so Joe Strummer was asked to write something heavy for the soundtrack to the 1980 Al Pacino movie cruising. And he was inspired after hearing about a valet Parker getting killed over a small sum of money. Despite strummer writing it, Mick Jones sings lead and added synthesizers. Peter, do we have a little taste of that? Somebody got murdered How do you feel about this song
0: it's one of the i mean it's it's one of my favorite it 's on my ten song sandinista you know boiled down record that song definitely makes the cut it 's a beautiful song it's just it's a it 's a great lyric. It's a great lyric, and it's just like it's just a, it, it just reveals just how much humanity that band has. Like that they that they make one of their epic songs about a valet parking attendant who was murdered. You yeah, know what I mean, like, and it's a beautiful song at the same time. And a hundred
1: percent, yeah. Well, this is this is what I think is is so great, and it's so great that you're doing this too, because like the band brought so many injustices in the world to so many people's attention. Uh, and you've called attention to so many through your songs. What cause or inequity uh, being corrected have you felt proud to be a part of?
0: Well, I mean, there's a there's been a, there been a lot of like specific issues, whether it's you know farm workers in Immokalee that won a strike or this that and the other the, the specific things. I think that the overall the the overarching pride in the issue I have is is the empowerment of the audience and letting them know that the, that the world is not going to change itself. The only one who's going to change it is you. And the good news is that throughout history, whether it's been progressive, radical, or even revolutionary change, it has been made by people no different than anyone listening to this podcast or anyone listening to Clash Records then or Rage Against the Machine, whatever, that didn't have any more power, courage, money, creativity. It's people just standing up in their place and time, fighting for a more just and decent planet. Yeah. That's the, the through line of the 19 records that I've been a, been a part of, and it's certainly a part of. You know what Joe Strummer the classroom
1: and so about. and still like the the shit that you guys performed in 1995 is just as relevant today. Sadly, which or it, more so. More,
0: or so, more so, yeah.
1: And that's and that's basically what One More Time is about. It's just about all these miserable things in history that just keep repeating mm-hmm. themselves.
0: Hey everyone, this is Tuck from Fit for a King an Off Road Minivan. Every week I bring you fun interviews alongside your favorite metalcore entertainers with my new podcast, Get Tucked. Join me every Monday with bands like Counterparts, Crystal Lake, like Moths to Flames, and many more. We play unsigned and undiscovered bands, deep dive into each artist's history, and of course provide the greatest breakdowns in current metalcore. Tune in to Get Tucked every Monday, out now through Sound Talent Media.
1: Hey you, do you have any plans this year?
0: or on your favorite podcast app
1: now now Tom, uh I don't know if you know this about me I generally hate white reggae but one more time in my opinion is the truest form of reggae by a white person ever peter play 59 seconds in bro your lady kicks Oh dude it's a shit dude. The little baby, he knows kung fu, he tries it on those he meets, basically <laughs> saying that the baby has had to had to because of this misery and violence, it's just made this baby so yeah. aggressive. And then there's there's references to the civil rights movement in America where the bus goes to Montgomery. It, it's just so powerful. And yet so danceable, which is just so odd. I mean, for something at 1980, I mean, who else is doing that?
0: The Clash got respect in reggae circles, you know, and uh, and uh, unlike some other bands of their era that were perhaps even more popular and sort of touched on reggae that, you know, had a just sort of took it in a much more kind of commercial pop direction.
1: Sure. All right. Uh, Speaking of commercial pop, this next song, in my opinion, is perfect pop up in heaven. Not only here, Mick Jones sings about growing up in England's public housing and how bad it was. Like I said, perfect pop. Peter, play minute 25. All right, yeah. so much I love about this song. So many great lines. You can't live in a home which should not have been built by the bourgeois clerks who bear no guilt. Fear is just another commodity here. They sell us peeping holes to peek when we hear. Fuck, that's good.
0: God yeah, damn. Yeah, and, and it's wrapped up in that pop song. I mean, that's the thing. It's like, that's the spoonful of sugar that helps the medicine go down. There's no there's no band that, like, does that. Yeah. You know, that... that, 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 that Fearlessly embraces the pop idiom. That's a pop song, yeah. But then writes about that. I mean, that's that. That's their whole. That's all them, right there. <laughs> Dude, they
1: at the end they're repeating these lines from '60s protest singer Phil Oaks yeah. He's got a song "United Fruit," which highlighted the injustices committed against poor South and Central American workers by the international trade corporations who profited off of them. Uh, Peter, play just a little taste of that. Two or three. I am to go. I mean, like th- you're just you're listening to this song. You're just like, yeah, they do this this rip. So oh, it's a nice little like outgoing like kind of chorus thing. You have no idea that you're being fed this political yeah. statement, and that's yeah. beautiful.
0: Yeah, I mean, and that's that's the I mean, the trick is, and it certainly was the case with like Rage Against the Machine. It's it's one thing, you know, when when you have like the moral compass that someone like I you you look for. Things in the arts and things in books and literally that sort of the that resonate or that harmonize with your worldview. But it's so very, very rare. The band. The Clash is first and foremost a great fucking rock and roll band. Yeah. If they're not, it doesn't matter what they're saying. Yeah. You know what I mean? It doesn't matter. And so, but then to go beyond, like being this kind of furious punk band, to have the 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 sort of the artistic audacity to play any genre but keeping their moral core intact is really pretty special.
1: So I gotta I gotta ask this because the title Up in Heaven reminds me of the Temple of a Dog song, "Say Hello to Heaven," uh, with your boy, everybody. Boy, one of the greatest singers of all time, Chris Cornell. Uh, which, which the stuff you did with Audio Slave, in my opinion, is the closest to like traditional classic hard rock that you grew up with too. Yeah. Um, And I know you guys had like a little mini reunion in January of 2017 at the uh, with protesting Trump's inauguration. And then unfortunately, a few months later, Chris is gone, which also really feels kind of like the clash losing Joe Strummer a month after finding out they were inducted in the Rock yeah. and Roll Hall of Fame. Uh, did, did Audio Slave have a re, like a reunion? Was there any kind of like, after having that moment in, in January, 2017, it was, were you guys going to pursue more after that? Yeah.
0: Well, we, we hadn't played together in 12 years. Yeah. Um, you know, Chris and I had played together once and, uh, actually Chris and I, we, in the, this is my studio, Chris had, you know, we rehearsed here for that show. Um, but the last thing he said to me in person was we should do this again. I was like, right on, let's figure it out. You know? And, um, you know, and sadly, he passed shortly thereafter, so we never got the opportunity. There,
1: such a great band, man! Such a yeah. great band, like just perfect use of of his vocal styling, your guitar playing, yeah. Uh, Tim Brad's just it was. I still remember. Uh, I ripped. God, I don't know. I, I'm not gonna lie. I think I got it illegally somehow like that first I
0: I, I taped I taped Sandinista in London calling too so
1: fuck yeah dude but I remember the first time I heard Cochise and I was just like dude I was like because you're always worried when it's like they form these super groups, and it's like you guys just did it so right man so I mean and I know we're homies but I just got to say thank you for it because yeah, well
0: you're welcome that was a it was really great I never stopped being a fan of Chris Cornell you know he was like I was a huge huge Soundgarden fan when I was in Lockup, my band before Rage Against the Machine, then Bad Motorfinger, that cassette was formative when we were, you know, that was like, that was, That and the first Cypress Hill record were in our cars when we were writing the first Rage Against the Machine music. And yeah. it's, you know, you know, he was a very special and unique musician.
1: Dude, one of my favorite days uh, during quarantine, uh, I went to Hollywood Forever Cemetery, I took mushrooms, and I just sat by his grave and just listened to his music and I, I mean, I I don't know if I mentioned this before on the podcast, but uh, Nora Jones played the Fox Theater, I think, four days after Soundgarden's last performance. And she covered, in his honor, Black Hole Sun. Mm. And I don't know if you've ever heard it, but, dude, yeah. listen to that cover. Yeah. It gives it. It's just with everything, like him playing that his last show there and her covering that as the first show after. I mean, if, mm. if you don't get choked up, then you're not. Yeah, no, I'll check it out. I
0: haven't heard that. Yeah.
1: So good. All right, just like the next song, Police on My Back. Uh, Peter, play the first verse. Burning, back.
0: Hiding, back. They want me
1: shooting, oh, my God. Back. All right, so this is a cover of the 1968 song by British band The Equals, written by their guitarist, Eddie Grant, who, if you don't know who he is, you definitely know his song, Electric Avenue. Uh, it's a cover, and yeah. yet it still fits the album.
0: Yeah, absolutely. I mean, this I, I always thought, why didn't they start the record with that jam? I mean, that's a hot start right there. Sure, you
1: know? sure. Yeah. No, so so I want to ask this, because this is just a basic outlaw song. Mm-hmm. Uh, I, I Online, I found, and I think I've counted, you've been arrested five times for civil disobedience during protests. Have you, and I got to ask this in the comic and me once to ask this, have you ever been recognized by any police while you were being arrested? And they've been like, <laughs> as they're putting you in cuffs, they're like, dude, I'm a fucking uh, fucking evil empire, dude.
0: No, no, no. That's, uh, different band members they have. Timmy once got in a lot of trouble. He he wailed on this. <laughs> he wailed on an off-duty cop, and then the cop realized he was a fan. So it, And then he was just like, fuck, fuck
1: yeah. He's <laughs> like, bulls on, just get hit.
0: Yeah. Do you have any no, do you have... not so much. I mean, I actually do or do you remember I don't know if you remember the band Body Count with Ice T. Fuck yeah, they had that dude song, they had that song Cop Killer and Ice T was like on the cover of Rolling Stone, like kind it was like it was very controversial at the time, and they were there were calls to like have him dropped from the label and whatnot. But I we rage opened for body count in New York City during the height of that controversy, and there was this big parade going by and a bunch of cops came up to Ice T to get their picture taken with them. You goddamn
1: right, dude. It's fucking ice tea, man. It's so like he's not just a dude from Law and Order S V U. He's one of the yeah. old schoolest, most down hip hop dudes of all time. Yeah. All right, the call up. So this is probably the most danceable draft dodging song in the history of music. Also, might be the soundtrack to the Cold War. Peter, play four twenty six. So this is the first single from the record. Uh, it has Norman Way- Watt Roy on bass again. Uh, he actually played on the first song, too. Uh, and it's about the draft in America, which after being deactivated for seven years, was reinstated in 1980. And there's also a reference to the atomic doomsday clock and dead end jobs. Uh, thoughts on this?
0: Yeah, It was I had to register for that draft. In 1980. Did you really? This, it looked like Reagan was going to go to the, the new Vietnam was going to be uh, El Salvador and Guatemala and Nicaragua. And we, it was a real thing for 18 year olds at that time. Like, were we going to have to, you know, none of us were going to go. We, if we were going to go, we were going to go fight on the side of the Sandinistas, you know, yeah. but we, but we, but it was like a real thing. Like you, we were looking at potentially having to go to jail um, or go to Canada or, you know, join the rebels in the jungles or something for real. And then the clash, of course, you know, wrote a song. Yeah. (laughs) Those are speaking perfectly to the time and encouraging us from, you know, overseas to, uh, to not heed the call up, which we had no intention of doing, but it was nice to know they had our backs. I don't know if you've seen the video for the song too, but it was like the absolute height of gorilla chic like they are dolled up in there like they're ready to head into the bush
1: dude. oh really oh,
0: <laughs> yeah. Yeah, i'm gonna watch the video as soon as we're done. Yeah. so the i want to an outfit on that is so is nuts, I, nuts.
1: I, well i want to i wanted to ask you about this because most people only know you as a rock star um and since this is about dead-end jobs this is about you know being called to the draft being called to do something that you don't want to do what was the worst job you've ever had
0: Oh, dude! I don't know where to start. I, uh, I mean, off the top of my head, I would say I, I worked. I did temp jobs. I did temp jobs, and I worked for the FDIC. I was a professional. I was a filer, which is a really a glamorous way of describing someone who alphabetizes all day long while getting yelled at for not alphabetizing fast enough. And I would get my 15 minute breaks and I would go into the bathroom. I hold on to the sink and I would be like, I am a man. Like I am a man. I have thoughts. I have, I'm a man. I've, I've, I've got, <laughs> Are it's you
1: in my I mind. That's me every day.
0: Everybody in the office. Yeah.
1: <laughs> is it true? Uh, is it true? You were, you were a stripper.
0: Uh, the rent does not pay itself. Sir. Exactly.
1: Oh dude. I, I, you know, I used to be a strip club DJ.
0: Oh really yeah No it wasn't It was, was bachelor at parties Alright
1: coming up to the stage Give it up for a <laughs> time Baby
0: Give it up Two for I had one a whole the routine There was like There was a whole I had a, a partner too It was like a whole like
1: What scene. was your song What was your song
0: Rick House was the money maker Fuck yeah dude yeah.
1: What if they wanted a, What if they wanted an encore What was the backup
0: no, you can. You have to control the room You, know For sure. <laughs> you, you're like, you don't You, you don't, get, don't follow up Brickhouse like, like, Brick- You don't play anything after Killing in the Name Yeah, 100% And you're also
1: like, dude, Brickhouse is like a six and a half minute song, dude You're yeah, good, yeah. that's all I can do You You've right.
0: gotta get money's worth during Brickhouse
1: Alright, uh, Washington Bullets uh, Which I love being from Washington, D.C. Being a huge basketball fan So to see that on this record yep. made me smile but, but honest to God, probably One of the best songs on the album Peter, uh, play the intro
0: All right, there
1: are in the street again Don't you know what happened down there you, the got shot down there the all right, So this is a down whirlwind down. trip through the US's and to a lesser degree, China and the USSR's imperialist foreign policies through several decades in countries all set to marimba.
0: Yeah. <laughs> yeah. I mean, for for me, like when your favorite band reflects my worldview was intact before I ran into the clash, you know, but to have your favorite band then reflect your worldview back to you yeah. in a way that you don't see from any of the educational figures or the authority figures that are like, that point of view that is in that song was not on the news. It was not in the classroom. It was absolutely true and accurate. And it was being reflected back to me by my favorite bands in a great jam. Like that's why we like, like there's bands that you like, there's bands that you love. And then there are bands that you believe in. Yeah. And that's the reason why like I put both hands around that band forever and ever is because of that. Like they, they had a, a a global view that was that was righteous. It was intelligent. It was absolutely a correct analysis in a lot of ways, and and they were a great band on top
1: of it. Yeah. So, so some people say uh, that this is Joe Strummer's most extensive and most specific political statement to date. Uh, because uh, Strummer is name-checking the conflicts or controversies in Chile, Nicaragua, Cuba, Afghanistan, and Tibet. And then I found this quote that I feel really... It's a great statement about how great Joe is as a lyricist. Bono from U2 said, The lyrics of Joe Strummer are like an atlas. They open up the world to me, much like what you said. Um, And I mean, because imagine, like... How many people are finding out About all of these injustices I know I've said it before But it's like you don't even realize You're getting fed this shit I mean, dude, sample lyric uh, Those Washington Bullets want Castro dead For Castro is the color That will earn you a spray of lead and that's yeah. just
0: I mean that's Yeah, and the line about Victor Hara and Santiago Stadium, yeah. like that was something that I first heard Victor Hara's name from that song. And because there were a lot of other touchstones in that song that I was familiar with, I looked up Victor Hara. For those of you who don't know, Victor Hara was like a combination of sort of like the Bob Dylan and Elvis of South America. Or you might say that Bob Dylan and Elvis were the Victor Hara's of North America. Yeah. Uh, with that level of sort of like importance and popularity. Uh and when the US backed coup of chile happened uh where the u.s-backed junta executed the president rounded up dissidents including victor hara uh and murdered them they smashed victor hara's hands so he couldn't play music uh and then they murdered him in in santiago stadium and so imagine like that's bob the bob dylan of south america was it and so i learned that from that song and it, it was just like holy you know shit like that's yeah that's really really hard and you know and then years later i visited his grave there i met his widow and stuff but my journey to the music and the and the uh lesson of victor hara and u.s imperialism was from that song
1: so then this is what blows my mind about you because you i mean just the way you could you could recite all of that knowledge it's like you're you are you you a The politically outspoken son of a history teacher, you know, a high school honor student, you go to Harvard, graduate with honors in political science and a BA in social studies. Like how and why did you avoid getting into politics? Because you just if you I feel like you you could have done either
0: or. Well, first of all, I didn't avoid getting in politics. That's kind of what I think of I as my, my day job. But uh, when you politic with a capital P, I was the scheduling secretary for United States Senator Alan Cranston for two years. Mm-hmm. Uh, and so I got to be in the middle of the sausage making and it's everything you expect and worse. And it made me, it was a day job for me while I was trying to, you know, apply my trade as, as a rocker because it was a job I could get with my degree. Yeah. But I got to see what the real internal workings are of, you know, of, of politics, yeah, electoral oligarchy, democracy—it was horrible. And he was a good guy. He was a pretty, you know, personally, he was a good dude. He was on the right side of a lot of environmental issues and whatnot. But it was 100% about asking rich dudes for money, and then returning those favors. Yeah, the end. That sucks, man. The end. I was the guy on the phone. My job was to call him. Can you hold for the senator? Oh. Like, like that was my job all day. And then he'd work him. You know, he'd like the little bit of the carrot a little bit of the stick then they call back later with a little bit of the carrot and a little bit of the stick it's jesus
1: cool. that's just such a bummer man that's such a bummer but dude you still get to do it i mean you're just as political now as you you probably were
0: it cured me of wanting to like do that stuff.
1: well i'm glad that that went down because if you wouldn't have fucking started half of your bands i don't know <laughs> that's do, do you know how many do you know how many guys wouldn't you know we, all our aggression would just be, be like lonely, floating lonely
0: or- mosh pits dude, and, ex- it would have been, and ex- bow flexes there would have been
1: yeah, dude, you can't wall a death to anything but alright uh, we've come to my favorite song on the album Lose This Skin um, this literally stopped me in my tracks when I heard it uh, Peter play the intro
0: All right, so this was written have to trust us, It's a great song. Oh, it
1: dude, dude, that's not even the best part. Here, Peter play play the best part at 110. Do not I to see. all the things you think we've got. Do not God, I love this dude's voice. So, so like you said, this is Joe Strummer's uh, old busking partner and former squat mate, uh Taimon Dog, who also played violin in it. And I, I feel like if you're in a bad mood, listen to this song because it's all about just dropping the weight that you're carrying and like, like, you know, coming out of the cocoon as, you know, your old self being a better self. And it's just so a very great.
0: stirring Particularly stirring
1: melody. Yeah. So being that they're they're playing on this record with so many different vocalists, and you've been in three distinct projects with the same band but with different vocalists, do you all approach the process of writing and playing differently with each group?
0: Oh, definitely. Um, yeah. I mean, no doubt. I mean, the, I mean the, you know, Zach. Of course, most of his vocals were sort of rapping, screaming, or whispering. You know what I mean. So there was a, and that was very much the. James Brown formula of everything comes around to the one it's the hip it's it's basically hip hop music with Sabbath riffs yeah. in a way you know and punk rock fury uh then with Chris Cornell who is gorgeous and terrifying melodic vocals yeah we had to provide a more of a diverse harmonic bed for him to be able to Fly. Um, uh, and then with Prophets of Rage, I mean, it was, you know, we're dealing with two of the iconic MCs in the yeah. history of hip hop in, in Chuck D and Be Real. Um, and, you know, just really enjoying with Tim and Brad, like like doing what we do. Like we play together for a long time. And the particular thing that we do, and there's been elements of it in, in each of our bands, but the particular chemistry we have is one that is, you know, there's a fury to that rock in those grooves and those riffs, which we uh, just tried to
1: enjoy oh uh, trust me i enjoy your fury i enjoy your fury hey there i am johnny christ from avenge sevenfold and i've got a podcast called drinks with johnny you're gonna want to check out i sit down with a bunch of different people from all different walks of life from professional wrestlers to actors comedians fighters musicians I, dude, I fucking, I saw Prophets of Rage at, uh, what is the big state, the forum, and, and I went in kind of like, yeah, they're not Rage, you know, they're Rage, but they're not, and then I watched it, and you see Be Real and and Chuck D, like, go off, and you're like, oh no, this is its own thing, and this is this beautiful release, and yeah, you're doing some covers of Rage, but it's like, you you know, it just, it, it felt so entirely different and yet it was the best way to say it it's like it was like comfort
0: food it was just this yeah. beautiful meal
1: was that did that like how did that that come about like just to get well, it
0: was in 2016 it was in the ramp up to the election and and it was you know i remember seeing the cry on on cnn said donald trump rages against the machine i was like oh <sighs> oh no oh no no oh no no yeah don't <laughs> um and you know called up tim and brad and and asked if they were up for you know doing something and then like the i mean the two primary hip-hop influences musically on rage against the machine were public enemy and cypress hill you know and then and then the sort of the lyrical and street genius of those two guys was one that was you know hugely important to me and to you know all of us Uh, and so and they're great dudes as well you know like really really like good stand-up I mean, I just,
1: it just, but it's, does it still like trip you out? Because I know like what I love talking to you is, is that you're a music fan first and foremost. Like you're, you're still, and I see it like you're still that, that young teenager listening to like these albums and when you get you you start talking about music that you love you get excited and i know you were a fan of public enemy especially yeah. early on for hip hop so i mean was there how many moments were were it's you it's
0: trip i mean i like I, you know i while i've collaborated with a great many musicians i've been in, in bands with Zach De La rocha chris cornell yeah. chuck d be real and bruce springsteen you know, that's, so that's fucking like, nuts. As far as, like, dude far front like front like that's pretty solid right it's there. Solid, man. dude. That is super solid. I've made records with all those guys, you know, and, and that's really like, you know, much of my, the important parts of my record collection, you know, have come to life on stage with yeah. me, you know, and I just never take it for granted.
1: Good, good, dude, because you're killing it. All right. Charlie, don't surf. The last one I want to talk about. Uh, Peter, play 120. <laughs> So this has an early 60s, like, R&B doo-wop vibe. Uh, and I know we were just talking about him, sort of like what Springsteen loves to do, you know, take it back to the old school. Uh, it's inspired by Apocalypse Now. Uh, and this is another anti-imperialism song about the U.S. imposing its Western culture told from the perspective of a Viet Cong soldier during Vietnam, which, you know, is rare. No, Not many people are taking their side and singing about that.
0: Yeah. 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 I mean, the, the clash where Joe Storm was was intoxicated by Apocalypse Now, the movie Apocalypse Now, as a way like a as a guiding light for how you should make art. Uh, and it appears in, you know, the next uh, next record as well. But but, you know, it's it's just it's a, it's just another testament to the band's genius. And they take that one classic line from that classic movie. Charlie Don't Surf, of course, means that the Viet Cong are not do not surf so that the ocean is is theirs. So they don't have to worry about it when they're on there. they so um so awesome. You know, it's just, it's another, like, like just the, to have that kind of diversity and depth and interesting subject matter, but to be able to present it, it's one thing to have those ideas in your head. It's another thing to be able to present them in this diverse encyclopedia of world music in a way that is successful. It's like, you know, some bands have, some bands have a long reach, but don't always have the grasp to make stuff happen. The clash had both.
1: Dude, all right, do you want to do some facts and get out of here? Sure. All right, usually I sing, but I'm going to fuck it. I'm going to sing. We'll do some facts and we'll do some facts. All right. All right, so we touched on this earlier, but I have it more in depth here. So they fought with their record company to make the previous album, London Calling, a two-record set. But then the record company released Bruce Springsteen's double album, The River, so they spitefully made this a three-record set and like London Calling, sold it at a cost of a single record. However, they lost two hundred thousand in sales in the UK and fifty percent everywhere else. So, I wanted to ask you, when have your ideals backfired?
0: Well, in that I don't know their ideals backfired. I mean that they they did what they set out to do. They wanted True. their fans. Have, they wanted their fans to have not be ripped off. They wanted to give them more music. So that feel, I mean, it may have. I don't wanna say backfire, but it certainly may have harmed them. It costs them yeah, it cost you know, them
1: financially. But I, yeah, so, I mean, so, in, in, in think in the
0: in the same in that same this is not backfire, but like when you when you take principled positions in an in an adversarial uh business relationships, there are often repercussions. You know, yeah. like 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 we've seen you know in my various bands and whether it's the night Watchmen stuff sometimes like you can't book a gig in a particular city or get a song on a radio because of the subject matter of the song now i don't look at that as like backfiring like you just you stand on your principles and let the chips fall where they may and that's what i think what they did there
1: hundred uh, percent i no, i'm not saying like it's it's like anything backfired because i think this makes me love them
0: even more yeah that- yeah it's, it was, it's just a it's a here's the thing like courage is contagious You know what I mean? Like courage is contagious. And the and the clash made less money on those albums than he would have otherwise. But we're talking about those acts of standing up for your fans decades later, you know, and the courage that they had to stand up for their fans and what they believed in and take the financial hit for it boldly and against any good common business sense or music industry sense. But that's like. That kind of courage is contagious because now maybe somebody hears this interview and they have to make a choice of whether they, you know, they're feeling conflicted about whether they want to lend their song to a Pepsi. I don't know what it is. What are the equivalent would be in TikTok equivalent would be in this <laughs> and age. <laughs> What's the sellout move in TikTok? I don't know. Um, but but it, but that kind of courage is contagious. And we all paid attention to that. And sure. I would have happily paid for the three album set. I would have saved up and bought it. For but sure. They, but they stood on their they stood their ground.
1: Well, it's I think it's the same thing as Radiohead giving away in rainbows for whatever anybody wants to pay for it. Yeah. I mean, it's like maybe they're not doing that if the Clash doesn't do this. Yeah. You know, sure. I, I have yeah. to believe that because yeah. you know it's just it just seems like it makes sense. All right, their debut show was opening for the Sex Pistols. And later that same night, they, the Sex Pistols and most of their punk scene went to see the Ramones play their first show outside of the US at the Roundhouse in London. They were all blown away and it was confirmed that punk was about to break. Um I think I was talking to my my writer Morty about this that I don't know if it was the Ramones or the Clash or the Sex Pistols, but they were afraid of the Ramones? Like, they were going to fight them or something? Have you heard anything like that? No, I
0: don't I don't know that story. Yeah, I don't know that.
1: So I wanted to ask you this. What was the most profound concert experience you've had?
0: Mm. Well, I mean, it's a, it's really a coin flip between my first concert experience, which was Kiss. You know, I was like, well, that's this was the most exciting room I've ever been in in my life. And then that Clash show, where it broke down those walls of... Um, sort of like the mythic hero of heroes of rock. And you're, you're just a, you're some schlump in a basement with your music man app. You could never dream of being that. So you just worship it. And the class show was like, he's got the music man app. I've got the music man app. We're just both dudes in bands. He's doing it. I'm doing it. Let's all write our songs.
1: Yeah. All right. This one, this one's kind of a funny one. Paul Simonon was once voted the world's hunkiest man in Playgirl magazine.
0: What do you think? That's how he got the gig. He got in the band. <laughs> he didn't know. He never held a bass in his hand. He, <laughs> his cheekbones got him in the band. And that's one of the interesting, like, back that, like, there was these sort of Svengali dudes, and whether it was Malcolm McLaren or Bernie, Bernie Rhodes with The Clash, that they were putting together, you know, they, they had ideas and they sort of, like, cast characters you know, in, in in these parts. And then incredibly these characters who may have been originally noticed because of their, you know, their sort of swag and their cheekbones grew into (laughs) being these historically important musicians.
1: For sure. For sure. If he didn't deserve the the world's honkiest runner up a (laughs) hundred percent. All right. Uh, last one. Uh, Joe Strummer disliked the punk practice of gobbing especially after someone landed a greenie in his open mouth and he got hepatitis, yeah. uh, which is disgusting. But I wanted to ask you, because I've been to, I think, six or seven rage shows. It's it's an experience. It's an attack on your system. There's some crazy shit going down. What is the craziest shit you've ever experienced at a Rage Against the Machine show? Oh, or wow. seen,
0: or seen. Yeah. I mean, probably, I mean, maybe Pink Pop, It would probably be different. The the two top the first that come to mind are Pink Pop ninety four, where during Killing in the Name the crowd registered one point one on the Richter scale, according to the front page of the Amsterdam Times the next day.
1: Everybody was just stoned
0: as fuck. It was like it was like the whole country was you know crazy. Do you remember Um,
1: that? Do you remember that moment? Like, do you like? Did you did you feel the shaking like while
0: you were on stage? I mean, you see it. It's like it's because because the way that sound travels slower than like they jump it's like a they're hearing the snare hit in different places as it goes back so they jump in this like crazy slow wave yeah because the beats drop you know later back there than here and so the view it's like it's in, it's just it's gnarly oh it's, it's so uh, but probably the most the most heated moment of any show was in bring us back to victor har was in santiago stadium it's a new stadium, but it has the same name as the old stadium where he was murdered. And Rage had never played in South America. It was our first show in. So- Rage was a very popular band in South America, and we had never played in South America. Our first show in South America was in Santiago Stadium, where which has a lot of history. Yeah, it was. I don't know if you remember those miners that were like trapped in. Yeah, no, I remember that. Yeah. It was like the day, like they were now saved, and the next day they were going to be freed. So it was like it was this awesome moment of for the country. We covered a Victor Hara song in that stadium, and then we but we opened with the song "Testify," and I've never. It looks I some there's some cell phone, but it looks like it's CGI. Like like the dictionary de- definition of ape shit would be what it would. It's so it's the most physical response that I've ever seen. Like it makes Queen at Live Aid look kind of, they did pretty good.
1: Yeah, yeah, yeah. Dude, still the the opening of a Rage Against the Machine show. That's
0: on the list, too. That's on the list, too.
1: But the opening of a Rage Against the Machine show is so badass with just saying we're Rage Against the Machine from Los Angeles, California. I want to do that so bad with my stand-up act, and yet it would not carry the (laughs) Yeah, I'm Josh Adam Myers from Germantown, (laughs) Maryland. All right, so Facebook's crazy. And they'd be like, (laughs) yeah, dude. Tom, uh, I, I can't thank you enough, man, for taking time out to to talk to me about this. This is I don't think I've been, I've looked forward to a podcast uh, more in my life, man. So so thank well, you. Well, I don't.
0: Let me just tell you, I don't do very many podcasts. So, I know. Uh, it was the thank you for uh, I enjoy speaking with you, and the subject matter is one that is near and dear to my heart. So thank you for your thoughtful questioning. My pleasure, dude. Hopefully, you know maybe we'll turn a few people on to Sandinista. the one and only Tom
1: Murillo. For all things Tom, check out his website, Tommarillo.com. Find him on Instagram, at Tom marillo and on Twitter, at T Murillo. The letter T, then marillo. Check out Tom's new song, You Belong to Me, on Spotify, title Apple Music, wherever you get your music. It's incredible. Also, check out his photo memoir, Whatever It Takes, that is coming out this fall and available for pre-order. And... When all this shit blows over, make sure you catch Tom and one of the greatest fucking bands of all time Raise against the machine when they go back out on tour. I was supposed to go see them. I was supposed to go to their first show in El Paso. Backstage, VIP, fuck you, COVID. You fucked up their, their return, and I hate you. But check out Tom's new single and check out his photo memoir, whatever it takes. Follow him on social media. He is the motherfucking man. Also, the 500 Club is alive and well. We're going to be posting the full episodes of all the ones we trimmed down over the last two years on our Patreon. Join the movement. Go to Patreon and sign up for new merch that my boy, Young and Sick, and I are cooking up in the lab. Sign up for the 500 Club today. It'll be worth it. We've got new podcasts, a whole bunch of new shit we're throwing on our Patreon. Plus, we're giving you free shit. We just listened to The Clash from 1980. This week, our music director, Matt Pinfield, picked Kid Brunswick for our new music pick of the week. Kid Brunswick is a solo artist from London who's part of a new wave movement of aggressive experimental artists who fuse electronics with traditional instruments. His father's favorite album was Clash Sandinista. He released his new album, We Surround Ourselves With Chaos, last year and has released a few singles this year. You're listening to his newest single, Prescription Kid. That's what's playing in the background. And you can find all those links on our website, the500podcast.com. And if you're in a band and were directly influenced by one of these albums or artists and you want your music featured on the 500, send your song to 500 podcast at gmail.com. Make sure you put the album and artists that influenced you in the subject line. Next week is PJ Harvey week as we go deep into her 1993 sophomore album, Rid of Me. This is round two for PJ. I love her, you love her, do your homework, listen to the album, stay fleecy, doodle, doodle. I'm a young boy, baby, I'm a young boy. I'm aggressive, I don't give a fuck, boy. I got arrested, I was fucked up, boy. I don't blame myself, I blame the prescription drugs, boy. I got excuses, I know when to use them.
0: Hey, what's up? My name's Lurk, and I'm the host of Lamgoat's Van Flip Podcast. Every week, I have in depth conversations with bands from all over the scene, big and small. We also like to keep our finger on the pulse and showcase up and coming bands on the show as well. So come check out Lamgoat's Van Flip Podcast. Porn, Satan, drugs, therapy. It's not just the list of what I'm up to this weekend.